Hi, my name is Sue. The New Testament reading today is found in Acts 2, 37 through 41. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. The word of the Lord. Good morning, my name is Mary, and the Old Testament reading is found in Psalms 106. Both we and our fathers have sinned. We have committed iniquity. We have done wickedness. Our fathers, when they were in Egypt, did not consider your wondrous works. They did not remember the abundance of your steadfast love, but rebelled by the sea at the Red Sea. Yet he saved them for his name's sake, that he might make known his mighty power. He rebuked the Red Sea, and it became dry, and he led them through the deep as though through a desert. So he saved them from the hand of the foe and redeemed them from the power of the enemy. And the waters covered their adversaries. Not one of them was left. Then they believed his words. They sang his praise. The word of the Lord. My name is Greg. Thank you for standing for the gospel reading. Found in John 3, 1 through 7. There was a Pharisee named Nicodemus, a Jewish leader. He came to Jesus at night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could do these miraculous signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered, I assure you, unless someone is born anew, it's not possible to see God's kingdom. Nicodemus said, How is it possible to be born for an adult to be born? It's impossible to enter the mother's womb for a second time and be born, isn't it? Jesus answered, I assure you, unless someone is born of water and the Spirit, it's not possible to enter God's kingdom. Whatever is born of the flesh is flesh, and whatever is born of the Spirit is spirit. Don't be surprised that I say to you, you must be born anew. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise be to our Lord. Please remain standing as we pray. So Holy Spirit, we ask you to open our eyes because what we really want today is to see Jesus. And we ask you to open our ears because what we really want is to hear your voice, your word. And we ask you to open our hearts today because what we really want is not just to be challenged or to be informed, but we really want to be changed. We want to be transformed. Give us hearts that would love you and believe you and follow you, Lord. In Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. My wife and I have four kids. Four. Four. Uh, the two older ones are ten and a half and eight and a half. The two younger ones are five and a half and about three. And the two younger ones are at that really fun age where when you bring up the subject of bath time... They come up with all kinds of creative reasons why they don't need one, you know. 
such as, I just took one, like three days ago. And don't judge. And they might say, well, I, I don't really need, I, I'm, I'm not dirty. I am one of those rare people that is naturally you know, fresh and clean. No, they don't actually say that, but they act like offended. Like, what do you mean I'm dirty while the yogurt is in their hair and like sweat and grass stains after the soccer game? Like, no, 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 you need to take a bath now. And I was thinking that this is sort of a picture of what it's like in our day when you say to someone, you need to be baptized, or in the immortal words of Nacho Libre, how come you have not been baptized? And they look at you like, why? I mean, the water thing, it's all kind of weird. I mean, why does this stuff matter? Like, who cares? What is this about? And actually, if we were to zoom out a few levels further out, you'd say, actually, the problem is not specifically with baptism. The problem really is with what we think the problem is. (laughs) Several decades ago in the 1960s, uh, A theologian was coming to give a series of lectures to seminary students at Princeton Theological Seminary, and these were young people that were being trained for the pastoral ministry. And as he was preparing his his talk or his lectures, he was informed that so many of these people who were training for the ministry were actually already considering dropping out. Uh, and, and maybe when they would complete the degree, but they weren't actually going to go on and be in ministry. And when he pressed them, he discovered that one of their reasons for their discouragement was that they felt that nobody actually valued pastors anymore. That people were not convinced that society needed men and women who were ministers. And as he was preparing his lecture, this theologian began to say, okay, I think the problem is the disappearance of sin. And that once we have eliminated sin from the equation, there's really no need for the people who proclaim the gospel because if sin is no longer the problem, the gospel is no longer the answer. If sin can be explained away by, well, it's just habits or behavior or upbringing or this or that, and it's just it's things that we can kind of self-talk our way out of, or maybe with the right therapy or the right you know, sort of counseling, we can just cognitive behavior ourselves into a new way of being. Now, please don't get me wrong. I value counselors. My wife is trained as a counselor. I have seen counselors. Mostly my wife was trained so she would know how to live with me. But I believe very strongly in in, in therapists and psychologists. My sister is a psychologist. I believe in the value of all of those things. So I'm not knocking it. I'm only saying that there is a different role that pastors have. Pastors are not fundamentally therapists. Pastors get to talk about that one thing that other people are not allowed to talk about, and that is sin. Could there be something deeper at work in us than just that we have wrong behavior or wrong thinking? Could there be something more fundamental that we have to address that has to do with this nagging sense of guilt? Now, guilt, there's a problematic thing, isn't it? When you think about it, we don't want to talk about sin, and yet we can't shake the sense of guilt. 
And so we have ways around it. We have ways around it by saying, well, you know, guilt, it's really just a socially imposed um, thing that we put on each other. So really what we need is to eliminate all of these artificial social constructs such as shame and guilt. And we just need to say that everybody's okay, that you can do what you want and I can do what I want. And if you can embrace your truth, then there's no shame. And if I am free to embrace my truth, then there's no shame. And so we've taken the problem of guilt and shame and we've tried to use an eraser over it only to discover that it's written in permanent ink. And we don't know what to do. What can I do with this thing? Because I don't want to believe that religious line about sin, but I've got to find a way to shake the sense of guilt. And so again, a pencil eraser over the words, over, but what's written in permanent ink will not go away. Maybe the most haunting thing about it is the personal, the very personal question of what is it that defines you? Your best moments or your worst moments? And so he said, well, well, I mean, we've all got weaknesses, but I'm not defined by my worst moments. I'm not defined by what I did last night. Or, or I, I, It doesn't matter if you know what I did last summer. That was a little corny, but I couldn't resist. I, 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 I'm going to be defined by my best moments, by my most heroic moments, by my most... Uh, uh. Okay. But why? Why should you be defined by your best moments? And even then, are your best moments enough? How good is good enough? How clean is clean enough? How praiseworthy is praiseworthy enough to say, ah, my good outweighs the bad, therefore I will be defined by the God. Where do we end this? The creed points us to the truth of the gospel. And today we're in this moment, so you know we've been in this series on the Nicene Creed, and this is week seven of what will be an eight-week series. So if you've loved it, I'm sorry, it's coming to an end next week. If you've not really enjoyed it, good news, it's coming to an end next week. But we're in week seven of this, and the Creed was formalized by a council in the year 325 AD. Over 300 bishops came together and they said, look, there's some false teachers that are saying wrong things about Jesus and it doesn't line up with what John said and what Paul said and what the apostles taught. And so we've got to make sure that everybody's on the same page. And so they formalized what Christians believe. And so it came to be called the Nicene Creed because it was formalized at the Council of Nicaea. Now, so far, we've worked through what we believe about God the Father, about the Son, about the Holy Spirit, even about the church. Today, we talk about this phrase, one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. The phrase will be up on the screen here in a minute. Would you say this together as a church? We acknowledge one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. Right off the bat, you know that there's a different verb. So far, we've been saying we believe. We believe in one God. We believe in one Lord. We believe in the Spirit. We believe in one church. Now we're saying we acknowledge. The Greek here is different. It's not the same strength of saying I believe in because ultimately, our faith is not in baptism, right? Our faith is in Christ. It's in the Father. It's in the Spirit. Our faith is not in baptism, but we confess baptism. We acknowledge the power of baptism. And so the phrase says we acknowledge one baptism 
for the forgiveness of sins. I want to take this phrase, this sentence, in two halves this morning. I want to talk about baptism first and then forgiveness of sins second, and hopefully we'll, we'll see it put together by the end of it. First, baptism. Baptism, if we were to sum it up in one sentence, just in one sentence, we would say baptism is about passing from death to life. That's what it's fundamentally about. At its heart, baptism as, a, as an act is about passing from death to life. But we must unpack that a little bit. That's great. That's a nice sense. But let's unpack it a little bit. In the scriptures, we're given three very powerful metaphors, probably a few more, but at least these three powerful metaphors for understanding baptism. The first is the story of the Exodus. Picture in your mind Israel being rescued out of Egypt as slaves. And if, you don't, if you've not read the story, you've at least seen the movie because there's like an animated version and then another version. And so you, you've at least sort of pick, can picture this. There they are. They're coming to the Red Sea and they're saying, God, why did you bring us here? We, we would have been better in Egypt. And then the miracle happens, the, the waters get, put, get, get rolled up and rolled back and they walk through in dry land and then the waters close over over Pharaoh and his armies. That's a picture of a kind of death. And then the other metaphor, you, you heard it in the gospel reading this morning, where Jesus is talking to Nicodemus and he talks about being born, born of water and of spirit. The second metaphor is one of birth. Now, not to get all midwife and doula on you, but you were all born once. And when you were born, you passed through the bag of waters, if you will. And so there was a passing through the waters that marked your emergence into the world. It's true. And so water becomes the symbolism of birth. It's a powerful metaphor that says, here we are passing through waters and into a new life, a life outside of the womb. The third image comes from the life of Jesus itself. And that is of death and resurrection. Jesus' own going to the cross, dying and rising again. So let's look at each of those three pictures and see what they say to us. First, the Exodus story. Exodus says to us that baptism is a public declaration of faith. Here again, the New Testament reading that we heard this morning. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins. That's, by the way, where the writers of the creed got the phrase from, baptism for the forgiveness of sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promises for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, save yourself from this crooked generation. So those who received this word were baptized, and there, there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Notice the phrase that Peter says. He says, look, save yourself. Mark yourself out from this generation. How? By baptism. Baptism is a public declaration of our faith because it's saying to the world, I used to be part of this community. I used to be part of this place, but I am no longer there. I am here. And there's no story that makes that come alive more than the story of the Exodus. Think about this. These people are grown up as slaves in Egypt. A few generations, 
All they had known was life in Egypt. Some were convinced it was terrible. Others were like, well, it can't be that bad. And so then they get to the water and they say to Moses, Moses, why? Why did you bring us here just to die? And he's thinking, do you not remember the whips on your backs? But see, they're so attached to life in Egypt. So attached that they're so willing to go back. There's this gravitational pull back to Egypt. And it's not until they walk through the waters of the Red Sea and all of a sudden it parts for them but drowns Pharaoh and his armies. What's that a picture of? It's a picture of God saying, your old way of life is coming to an end today. The old powers that you used to trust in, the old allegiances that you used to define yourself by, the old arrangements, the old pleasures, the old fears, the old lifestyle, the old people and context and community and life that you once knew is drowned in the sea. It's over. It's over. And so the water represents a crossing the line. It it, it represents saying, look, there's an old way that's about to die. And once I cross over, that's it. Everything changes. It's a public declaration of our faith. I grew up in Malaysia, and um, Malaysia is multi-ethnic, but also multi-religious. Christianity, Christians make up about 10 to 12% of the population. The rest are Hindus, Buddhists, and then a a large segment of Muslims. Uh, My dad grew up in a Hindu family. My mom was an Anglican, thanks to good Protestant missionaries that came over decades before. And so then through my mom and dad starting to date, my mom announced to him one day, so I'm not marrying a Hindu. And he says, well, let me see if I can change that. And what ended up changing was his own religion. So we don't typically encourage missionary dating strategies, but uh, sometimes they work. (laughs) And so they got married, and my sister and I grew up in a Christian home. And I can remember, you know, I went to public school for the first, you know, several years of my life until I was about 10, and most of my classmates were uh, Buddhist, Hindus, or Muslims. One or two others were Christians. And so once in a while, this was back in the day, you know, in the, in the 80s, where um, when, when churches wanted to do big evangelistic rallies, you'd bring in like an exciting band, or for us, a speaker from another country like Australia, you know or New Zealand, or something, you know. And so we'd, we'd invite people, hey, come over, we're doing this youth event, we're doing this thing at our church, and come to our thing. And, and so people would come. And I remember friends, or friends of friends, that would be there that were not Christians, who came from Hindu homes or Buddhist homes, and they would come to the service and they would enjoy it, and you're always kind of watching to see how they're responding, right? When you bring a friend to one of these things, you're like, how did they, how did they do it? And then, and then you see them kind of at the end when the speaker is talking about get, making the decision, you see them kind of raise their hand, maybe because the speaker sort of scared the hell out of them, you know, <laughs> and they're okay, okay, you know, they're ra- and then the, the, the preacher does one of those tricks where first it's raise your hand with every uh, uh, you know, eye closed and head bowed. And then it's like, if you raise your hand, would you stand up right now? No one looking around. And then after that, like, see, if those who are standing would just come down to the front, you know? Like, what? Nobody said I was going to come down to the front. But they do. I would watch different people come. They would come down to the front. They would pray. And afterwards, you're talk, talking to them and saying, man, so, so you, you believe in Jesus? Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, th- I think so. And as time would go on, we'd say, hey, you know, we're doing a baptism service next week. Just wondering if you're ready to be baptized. 
And inevitably, some excuse would come up. Because in a multi-religious Eastern context, baptism was crossing the line of no return, the point of no return. And so for them, they would say, I'm good and fine to come to church, and I'm good and fine to sort of believe in Jesus and say these things, but once I get baptized, I will be dishonoring my family. I'll be dishonoring the ancestors. I will be uh, insulting to my parents. I can't possibly do that. They're Buddhists. They're Hindu. I just can't. I can't do it. And so baptism, even for them, and I'm saying this to you because for us in the West, we might think, well, baptism is sort of a take it or leave it, right? I mean, as long as we have faith in Christ, right? And I'm trying to say to you that through the lens of the New Testament, baptism was that public moment where you said, this old community, this old allegiances, this set of associations, it is now dead. An old life is now dead. And they understood it. That's why they said, I don't want to get baptized because I don't want to insult my parents or I don't want to insult my, I just need to, to, to wait until I go off to college and then maybe I can make those decisions which does happen for a lot of international students. But it says to us that baptism is that moment of crossing the line, publicly declaring, that's it. I'm not with this anymore. I am over here, which leads us to our second thing, birth. The birth metaphor says to us that baptism is initiation into the family of God. Listen to 1 Corinthians 12. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, all were made to drink of one spirit. What's Paul saying? You may have been born a Jew, but when you're baptized, you're baptized a Christian. You may have been born a Greek, but when you're baptized, you're baptized a Christian. You may have been born as a slave and into the lowest stratas of society, but when you're baptized, you've become an heir and a prince or a princess. You're part of the royal family of God. And you may have been a free person, born with the right kind of quote-unquote social strata, but when you're baptized, you become a servant to Christ. Paul is saying, look, you may have been born one way, but when you come into baptism, you're initiated into a whole nother identity, a whole new reality. If the Exodus story shows us how baptism puts to death an old community and an old set of, uh, of associations and identity, then the birth metaphor gives us a new family and a new identity. You guys, if you really think about this, it means your baptism trumps all other ID badges you have. It trumps all other associations. Paul says it strongly in Galatians 3. All of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ. Now if you belong to Christ, then indeed you are Abraham's descendants, heirs according to the promise. Paul is saying, look, there's only one new family that God is forming. And if you've been baptized, you're part of it. You've joined it. I'd like to think that when we enter the waters of baptism, it washes away all of the other associations we've had. We don't emerge from the waters as a Methodist or a Baptist or a Presbyterian or a Lutheran or a Charismatic. We emerge from the waters as a Christian. I'm part of the family of God. And to take that seriously is to say that your brothers and sisters are all baptized Christians all around the world. 
That means your baptism is stronger than your citizenship. Five years ago, I very gratefully took an oath in an office somewhere in Denver and became an American citizen. I voted with my feet. I love this country. But it's not the most important thing about me. The most important thing about me is my baptism. And the most important thing about you is your baptism. That means you have more ties with the Christian in Palestine than you do with the fellow Republican who's not a Christian. I'm just saying. (laughs) That your baptism breaks all other bonds. It's stronger than it. It means as much as I love the little homogenous groups of, you know, this or that, or even our immediate family, this is why I think there are limits actually to pushing family values. Did you know that? That the gospel actually might say to you there are limits to family values. Now, this got kind of meddled a little bit, because family values are a good thing. I love my family. Of course, I love my family. But Jesus redefines it, doesn't it? So who are my brothers? Who's my mother? It's those who do the will of God. That means your baptized brother and sister is more your brother and sister than a blood relative who's not in Christ. That is harsh. But Paul and Jesus, the gospel, is trying to reframe how you understand identity. He's trying to reframe who really is your brother, who really is your sister, who really are the people that you belong to. And what gets trumped is all the other things, zip codes and bank accounts and colors of passports and colors of skin. All of it dissolves when you say, but I've been baptized into Christ. And that becomes more important than everything else. There are very few places in society where you feel a sense of transcendent belonging. The closest thing I've come to is at a Broncos game. You know, I, I, I have a friend who's taken me to a few games. I'm always grateful we're going to go again this season. And I remember, you know, I was at the game years back when Jake Plummer was our quarterback. Lord help us. And it was the playoff game against the Patriots, but it was the one where Champ Bailey intercepted Tom Brady, the cheater. That, that's, um, it wasn't cheating. But intercept, that's not the word of the Lord, but it's probably close. Um, Bailey intercepts Brady and he runs it back almost to score and we end up winning and then we go to the AFC championship game only to get annihilated by the Steelers, Lord have mercy. And I remember being at that game and and maybe people were helped by a certain, you know, um, liquid substance. Um, but, But all of a sudden in that moment of the interception, it's like the people next to you become your best friends, you know. You're like hugging and high five. We're like jumping together, like it's like a long lost family reunion, you know? Yeah! And you forget what each other does for a living. You, know, you don't even care who lives where. Yeah, I mean, it's just nothing else matters except orange and blue, baby. <laughs> the, the thing about that, that, though, is as soon as the game's over, there goes the transcendent sense of belonging, right? The game's over, and you're like, hey, see me, bro. <laughs> and you have no clue who they are. You'll never speak to them again, right? But baptism is different than that. It says not, uh, you, you've passed through the waters. You've been born into a new family. These are your people. These are your people. More than anyone else on the planet. 
The third metaphor that the scripture gives us is about death and resurrection. Death and resurrection says to us that baptism is identification with Christ. That in the end, the power of baptism is that we are identifying with Christ's own death and resurrection. Paul says it this way to the church in Colossae, you were buried with him through baptism. How, how Paul, were we buried with Christ? How, how do I reenact that? How, how is that made sort of true for me when you're baptized? When you're baptized, you're reenacting the burial of Jesus. And then he says, and you're raised with him through faith in the power of God who raised him from the dead. And when you were dead because of the things you had done wrong and because your body wasn't circumcised, using another metaphor that's powerful for them, God made you alive with Christ. Are you catching this? When you were dead, God made you alive with Christ and forgave all the things you had done wrong. He destroyed the record of the debt we had owed with its requirements that worked against us. He canceled it by nailing it to the cross. People, that's worth shouting about. Paul is saying, look, you know what baptism reminds us of? That Jesus died our death. Jesus carried our sin. Jesus carried our guilt. And when we go down in the waters and it's all so strange, why are we doing this? Next week, we're doing water baptisms here at New Life Downtown. And we do it very unglamorously because we have this baptism tank, quote-unquote, that was made for prison ministry. It's basically glorified blue tarp with aluminum bars, and it folds out nicely like a pack-and-play, but it holds the water. And there's warm water, and you sit in it, and you bend your knees, and we bring you all the way down under the waters, and we pull you all the way back up. And you're in that moment reenacting the burial and resurrection of Christ. You're saying in that moment, I know that when Jesus went to the cross and to the grave, he went carrying my sin, carrying my guilt, carrying everything that left me dead. And when I'm rising up out of the waters, I'm remembering that God raised Jesus from the dead. And because God raised Jesus from the dead, I'm no longer dead in my sins. I'm alive. I'm alive. I'm alive. We identify with Christ's death, and we identify with his victory in life. See, the power of the gospel is not that Jesus came so we can all behave a little better. We can sort of learn new tricks, new habits, new behavior modification things, find out ways to keep our anger under control. All that stuff is fine. It's good. It's necessary. It's an important part of becoming different. But there's something at the very core that nothing else can fix, that no one else can fix, and it's this, that you were dead. You were dead. You can improve all you want, but you're dead. And the gospel says Jesus raised us to new life. Raised us to new life. The second half of this sentence in the creed, we acknowledge one baptism for the forgiveness of sins, has to do with forgiveness. And so when it comes to us and God, what is forgiveness? What is forgiveness when we're talking about us and God? What is forgiveness when we're talking about Forgiveness of sins. Not on the human dimension. That's a whole other sermon series. But what is it on the vertical dimension? What is forgiveness? There are four main Hebrew words that are used to convey forgiveness. 
what I love about the Hebrew language, which for me was a lot easier to sort of get with than Greek, is Hebrew is so picture-like. It's full of idioms. It's full of um, expressions, you know, like apple of your eye, things like that, picture language. And so when the, in the Old Testament, when they're trying to convey forgiveness, they don't do it with systematic, precise language. They do it with picture language. And these are the four words. The first means to send away. To send away. The second means to bear the weight, to carry it. You see, when you sin, someone has to actually bear the weight of it. You ever had someone just even on the the horizontal level of sin where someone wrongs you and you say, that's great, but the damage is done? Right? Like, thanks for apologizing, but actually I am stuck holding the bag. I'm stuck carrying the weight. Like, that's good that you're sorry, but ah, I'm carrying the weight. The Old Testament doesn't let us off the hook with a cheap idea of forgiveness. It tells us someone has to bear the weight of the wrong. Thirdly, to cover. To cover something. Somehow we've got to cover over this. And fourthly, to wipe away. Someone's actually got to remove it, clean it, erase it. Now, I want to suggest four words that we use in our culture today that actually go with each of these ideas. To send away, that has to do with guilt, doesn't it? Think of the story in the Old Testament where on the Day of Atonement, on Yom Kippur, they would bring one goat out and they would lay their hands on it. It sounds like a very creepy ceremony, but it's very symbolic. And they put their hands on it and say, On you be all the sins of Israel. That's where the origin of a scapegoat came from. And then they would send it away, send the goat away, outside the camp, outside the place, outside the cities. Why? As a way of saying, the Lord has taken our sins away, sent it. And then the second word, to bear the weight. Someone has to bear the weight. And so they would take a second goat or a bull, and they would lay hands on it, and they would say, okay, on you be all the sins of Israel. And then they would kill this animal, and they would say, the blood is now shed, a, a penalty, a punishment has been paid. Someone has borne the weight of this punishment has happened. And then they would take the blood and they'd go into the whole, the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies. I know this sounds bizarre, you guys, but there's a power in this metaphor. And they would take the blood and they would go to this altar, the place that represent the holy, holy, holy God. And they would sprinkle it on the altar to cover it. To say, now when God looks at us, he looks at blood that covers over sin. And they would do these things as a way of saying, he wipes away the stain. When you think about this, you guys, who can do this? Actually, the Old Testament leads us to a cliffhanger because the sins of Israel become so great that they lose faith in the sacrificial system. They start to say, is any bull enough? Is any goat enough? I mean, who can really send away our guilt? Who can really bear the weight of our punishment? Who can really cover over this mess? Who can really clean away this stain? Who can really do this? It's so filthy. Gets to the point that one of the late prophets, Isaiah, says, even our good works are like filthy rags. You get the sense that Israel is saying, ah, there there couldn't be enough bulls, enough goats. No, who can do this? Who can take away our guilt? 
And then, and then John says, when he sees Jesus, he says, behold, behold, not the Passover lamb, not another scapegoat, not another bull. John says, behold, it's the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Behold, behold. And so the New Testament only really has one Greek word that's used over and over again for the forgiveness of sins. It's pretty simple. It means the act of freeing from an obligation, freeing from guilt, freeing from punishment. In short, it means pardon. To be fully freed of it. I'd like to say to you, friends, that there is no other way. No other way to erase the guilt and the shame that we carry. You can't self-talk yourself out of this. I know that there's a popular kind of talk out there, books, TED Talks by this particular person. It's like trying to separate the difference between guilt and shame. And that's helpful to some degree. Guilt is, I've done wrong. Shame is, I am wrong. I, I get that. That's helpful. Same person has also said, well, shame is the belief that I am not enough. And so her answer to all of this is just to say, I am enough. Now, I appreciate this. And there's something valuable about that. And for some of us, that's the only place we can start. But I want to say to you, friends, the ugly truth of the gospel is it begins by actually confessing that I am not enough. It actually begins by saying, I am a sinner, not just that I have sinned. And Paul to the Romans says, all have sinned and have fallen short of the glory of God. The good news of the gospel doesn't begin until the bad news of our sin really sets in. You're not enough. But behold the Lamb of God. You are a sinner, but behold the Lamb of God. You could never rise to the occasion and improve yourself and shake away the shame. You can't shake it off. Something deeper must be done. Something deeper. I've had this conversation with different counselors who, who like to say, you, you've got to forgive yourself. And I've pressed them on this. We've had good dialogue about it because in the end they say, well, I think, Glenn, we, we mean that figuratively. You've got to forgive yourself. I said, that's great because actually, literally, you can't. If you took that phrase literally, you actually can't. And so we have a whole group of people who are trying to love themselves, forgive themselves, free themselves, and you can't. The gift you most desperately need is a gift that only one can give. The love you so desperately crave is the love that only one can give. The freedom and the cleansing that you so desperately need is not actually something you can give yourself. So to speak properly, you can't forgive yourself. How can one bear the weight of his own sin? Surely you will spiral and sink. How can one actually remove your own shame? Who's taking it? Someone said to me after the 9 o'clock, said, well, Glenn, I, I think that's tricky because what do you say to people who are not Christians? I mean, don't they need to start by some measure of forgiving themselves and 
learning to not embrace shame and all this stuff. And I think, listen, there's something to be said about starting there. There's something to be said about And there's also some value in, in recognizing that there's a neurotic sense of shame that is not appropriate, that is more than what you should take on. There's, there, all those qualifiers are true. But I said, in the end, I'm a Christian because I believe in the power of the gospel. I believe that the only thing that can remove the guilt and the shame and the stain and the weight of sin is Jesus. That's why I'm a Christian. If I thought we could self-help ourselves out of this, I'd be any religion, I'd be any kind of vague, ambiguous, daytime soap opera spirituality, I'd be any type of, but I'm not. I'm a Christian because I believe that only Jesus can. And this person said to me very honestly and very helpfully, said, but Glenn, you don't understand. If someone's dealing with shame, the last place they want to go is to God. I said, you're right. You're right. Because our vision of God is the God who heaps on more shame. Our vision of God is the God who points out more guilt. Our vision of God is a God who laughs at our stain and mocks us for the weight and the burden of our sin. But that vision of God doesn't come from the cross. Maybe it came from pop culture. Maybe it came from movies. Maybe it came from a bad pastor. Maybe it came from bad parents. Maybe it came from lousy friends. Maybe it came from a terrible church. But it didn't come from Jesus. Because in Jesus, we see the fullness of God. When John sees Jesus, he says, now we've seen it, the glory of the only begotten, full of grace and truth. You want to know what God looks like? Look at the God who came down to carry your weight of sin. Look at the God who took upon himself the very shame of your sin. Look at the God who took upon himself, Isaiah said it, it was for the punishment of our peace that he suffered. Look at the God who took on our punishment, our weight, our stain, our shame. Look at Jesus. Or as John said, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. There's only one answer. And baptism is the ultimate reminder of that. Baptism is the way of, of saying, I know that this is true and I'm declaring it to the world because I know it means an exit from one community and an entrance into a new one and above all, it identifies me with Jesus and I'll tell you what, there's no one else I want to be with than Jesus. I don't want to be with religious leaders. I don't want to be with people who condemn me. I don't want to be with self-talk babblers. I want to be with the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And baptism says, yeah, you're with him. You're with him. In fact, what God speaks over you at baptism is truer than any other word of con condemnation. What God speaks over you in baptism is truer than any word of condemnation. I'd like to think that it works this way. We're going to sin. We're going to fall. Odds are. But in that moment... You're not groveling at the feet of God saying, I wonder if he'll forgive me again. Some of you have thought that maybe because we do confession every Sunday that that's us saying, oh, maybe God will forgive me. I hope he does. Maybe if I say it 10 times, cross me, if I just, yeah. We confess from a place of confidence. 
the answer's already been given. The answer's already been given. When we confess on Sunday, it's, it's actually one of the most hopeful things we do because it's a way of saying, God, hey, guess what? I've had another week of realizing that I don't got it. And I am not enough. And into these empty hands, Christ placed his body and his blood. And Jesus said, I know you're not enough, but I am more than enough. I know you're empty, but I'm here to fill you up. And so what God speaks over us in baptism is truer than any word of condemnation. Do you remember what the Father spoke over Jesus at his baptism? Jesus emerges from the waters, and all heaven breaks open. And a voice is heard saying, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Friends, I want to tell you this. When you come out of the waters of baptism, the father speaks those same things over you. This is my beloved daughter. This is my beloved son. And I'm well pleased with them. And there is not another voice that can change that. Not another word that can undo that. That's the power. And the great thing about baptism is it doesn't expire. You know, you don't have to like get rebaptized over and over. You don't, you don't have to. Now, I'll say this. It's not a necessity, but sometimes people want to get rebaptized because they say, I, I just, I didn't get it before. I didn't have faith connected to it. I really like to do it now because I get it. I'm all for it. I'm all for it. So go give your name and email address at the table in the lobby. We'll, we'll get you on the list for next Sunday and we'll have the greatest party ever. <laughs> because you remember the scene in the prodigal son the father says my son who was dead is now alive that's what we're saying we come out of the waters and we're saying man this person I knew this person they were dead they're now alive they're now alive and the father will pull back the curtains of heaven lean over the edge and say with a loud voice this is my beloved child in whom I am well pleased and every time you sin every time you fall every time you confess again you do so from a place of confidence because you're saying God what you said over me in baptism is truer than any other word whenever the devil reminds you of your mistakes you say but I have been baptized in Christ I'm in him. Amen.